If you love to travel, you love cool experiences, I think you're going to love Viator. If you haven't heard, Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace. They've got everything from simple tours to extreme adventures, all the cool and interesting stuff in between as well. Well, this year, my wife and kids are making one of my bucket list trips come true. We're going to Sun Valley. So we're going to fly to Sun Valley, and I tell you, the thought of bringing skis, poles, boots, snowboards, everything overwhelming. But that's where Viator came in. They made this incredibly easy. I just opened the Viator app, searched Sun Valley, and boom, Viator arranges a first-class experience, custom ski, snowboard, and boot fittings and tickets delivered right to the condo. It's pretty amazing. Experiences are what we love most about travel. They create these long-lasting moments and make memories that will last a lifetime. Just download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. podcast dealing with the good, the bad and the inexplicable movies starring about or directed by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a range of musical and cinematic genres from country to hip-hop, documentaries to sci-fi. I'm Graham Williamson, film critic for The Geek Show and horrified. And this week I've been joined by... Mick Snowden, lifelong mod and card-carrying member. Yes, he are the mod, he are the mod, he are, he are. He are the mod. A disappointed mod today. Oh? I should be going to see From the Jam tonight in my hometown. Lockdown. But lockdown. Yeah, well. Uh, this week's show is a karaoke special in that half of our audience will be chanting the dialogue every time we mention a scene. It's not just a film, it's an album, it's a lifestyle, it's a thoroughly satisfying bright and tourist trail. It is <laughs> indeed quadrophenia which shows that in 1964 brighton was in ahead of its time in that it took american express <laughs> yes well one of the things that i because i hadn't seen this before i did this and you know part of the reason why i was very excited to do this was because it's a big hole in my british cult cinema education uh but it has that same appeal as Get Carter in that you were looking at one of Britain's great cities in a very different state mm. than it is today. You know, yeah, uh, it's it's considering it's the big highlight of their weekend. Uh, yeah, the trip to Brighton. It's a it's a horrible, grim, dirty looking Brighton. Yeah, which is fair because in the sixties, that's exactly how bank holidays were. Don't even have a vertical pier there. I know. Yeah. What is Lake. that about? I what don't is the know. vertical pier about? I like to think that someone, some architect has created a model for a new pier and then they accidentally leaned over on it and it just flipped <laughs> up. Yeah, meant to do it, meant to yeah. do that. 
<laughs> I, 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 once, I once went to a seaside town um, on a school trip and one of the girls said she was frightened of bridges, but she was all right on the piers until I pointed out that a pier is basically an unfinished bridge. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and that, that ruined her weekend. <laughs> it didn't ruin her weekend as much as some people in this film get their weekend significantly oh. ruined. Oh, the, but a film that uh, featured a lot of uppers and downers, it's a big downer for some people that weekend, isn't it? Yes. Because <laughs> I, I don't know if I really had any preconceptions going in. I didn't really know what to expect. But Quadrophenia, it's a very tough film. I think out of all of the films that we've covered, this is the one that feels least like a pop star movie. Well, I mean... <sighs> The, the thing about this, and, and, and this is, of course, the sort of second film based on a, a Who rock opera album. Yeah. Uh, loosely based, it has to be said. But then the, the storyline on uh, the Quadrophenia album isn't quite as strong as it is on, say, Tommy. Mm. Um, but the, the, the crucial thing about this is that the Who don't feature prominently in it. Yeah. Um, we hear their music. We see we a clip them, of them yeah. on. Uh, is it Ready Steady Go? It that is. They yeah, watch? yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, it's they're not featured in it, and it's not. It's not even a musical in the kind of loose sense that some other pop star vehicles are musicals. It's not even a, like a Hard Day's Night is not exactly a classical musical in that no, everyone no. plays their instruments. Um, but it doesn't even hit that barrier, Quadrophenia. No, it's it's not a musical. It's not one where mob, gangs of mobs and rockers are descending on Brighton and bursting into song in some kind of big West Side Story fight sequence. Which I would watch. I'm going to go away and write that musical now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, um, the thing with Quadrophenia is that, it, if you like, it's like a glorious pop video for the, the soundtrack out, but for the rock opera album mm. interspersed and i think this is what um is is quite clever about quadrophenia is to take it away from that um who centric rock album because <clears throat> i think unless you've got an interest in either the who's music or um mod, mod culture, culture yeah quadrophenia is quite a not an impenetrable album but it's it's not a, an album that appeals to the wider public, I don't think. It, yeah. It, there's, there's only a couple of sort of recognisable hits on it, 515 obviously being one. Mm. Um, but I think what they did quite cleverly with the soundtrack here, which helped to build up the world of 1960s Britain, is they interspersed it with lots of other sort of twee teen uh, pop and rock classics. Well, you know, you say twee, I think there's some absolute bangers on it. You've got Booker T and the MGs, you've got um, the Chevelles, was it? With yeah. He's So Fine, the yeah. song that is legally distinct from My Sweet Lord. <laughs> and the um, and the Crystals uh, yeah. and the Rhythm of the Rain. Um, Fantastic stuff, I think. And actually, if, um, if you were looking for a sort of gateway album into the Who's later uh less pop years let's mm. call them um 
probably the OST for this, which is markedly different to the concept album. Yeah. Is probably the way to go. Because as you said, there's a few bangers on there like um, Booker T. Oh, I absolutely love it. can't beat green onions. Yeah, it's fantastic. But yeah, um, we should probably trace a bit of the history of that album because it's quite an odd thing. Um, it was released in 73, so it's already just shy of 10 years on from the scene it's describing. Yeah. It was Townsend's attempt to write a rock opera that was more down-to-earth and more relatable than Tommy or Lifehouse, the failed one, which ended up becoming Who's Next. Yeah. Uh, and yet, when you listen to it compared with Frank Rodham's film, there's still some decidedly odd Townsendy touches on it. I mean, the title comes from this idea that Jimmy literally has four personalities, four yeah. personalities who are in some ways the four members of the Who at that point. And I don't know if that would come across if you just watched the film. I think the title in the no. context of the film just sounds really cool, which yeah. is enough. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, the other thing is that um, although they, they set the film in Brighton, mm. I don't think that theme of the sea comes across quite as strongly on the film as it does on the original album. Yeah, that's a good point actually. Yeah. Because it's a it's a big audio clue in the in in the album. Mm. And um for anyone who's not aware of the concept of Blu-ray audio, which is where they release albums in an uncompressed format on Blu-ray. Right. This is the album to listen to. Oh? Yeah. Get your 5.1 set up, close your eyes and lay back and just let the waves, or indeed love, they know you. (laughs) It is one of the Who's big production albums, really, isn't it? I mean, The Real Me, as the opening track, is like an an absolute blast. It's a film opening that hits you in the face, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And and in that opening image, it tells you exactly what this film is about. It's about mods on scooters. Yes. <laughs> Big scooters. Scooters with far too many lights and wing mirrors for anyone Sco- to usefully use. Scooters that are, have got more mirror than the actual body weight of the shop bought free <laughs> of the scooter. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, and it's what I like about that image is, as you, as you mentioned, that, that this this whole thing about quadrophenia and the four split personalities, mm. it's almost like the film opens saying, this is the real me. Me on my scooter with me mates. That's yeah. the real me. And at some point we're going to explore where the other me's are, maybe. <laughs> yeah, in the context of the album, that is more of a question, isn't it? Yeah. Who is the real me? Yeah. But as you say, the opening to the film is very affirmative. It sells you straight away on this character, this lifestyle. It, it's a completely different thing. Yeah. And you can see that a bit in the structuring of it. Like, I was trying to pin down why I thought this was so radically different from a lot of the 60s pop and rock movies. Yeah. 
And I think those movies were still structurally quite influenced by musicals, even though yeah. some of them weren't musicals. When you have a character like Ace Face, the Sting character in yeah. this, an earlier film would have introduced him straight away and had him as the kind of parallel story whose journey matches Jimmy's every step of the way. Yeah. Musicals are all very about that kind of neatness of structure. Yeah. They have to be. Um but this introduces Ace Face about halfway through. About an hour of the film has gone before we see him. And in that hour, we've just seen Jimmy's life and Jimmy's routine and Jimmy's home life and his social class and his leisure activities established in the manner almost of an Alan Clark film. It has an almost documentary air, which yeah. isn't something that you can often say about films that are based on a rock opera. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I, I think there are elements from the, the soundtrack that they've kept, that from, the, from the album that they've kept in the soundtrack of the film and woven it into that documentary narrative. The, mm. the radio broadcasts yeah. uh, describing yeah. the trouble at the weekend and all the rest of it, they're there on the album but they don't feel like they've been brought over from an album. They feel like they've just been subtly edited in to that yeah. clip of home life. And when you consider what stage this is at in terms of the wider use of pop music in movies, that is quite incredible because there's a point in here where one of the non-Who songs they use is Be My Baby by the Renettes. And that got me thinking immediately of the iconic use of that track in cinema, which is at the start of Mean Streets by Martin Scorsese. And you think, oh, God, when this happened, Mean Streets was about, what, five, six years old? Yeah. And that was the thing that really brought that idea of the needle drop, the pre-existing song used as a soundtrack into commercial cinema. Yeah. It had been done in underground movies by people like Kenneth Anger, but no one had done it as part of a narrative movie like yeah. that. But you look at this, and whether it's a song by The Who or one of the songs by the other artists, the music is used in that kind of way that is recognisable from modern cinema, yeah. where it's a counterpoint to the scene, it sets the mood, it's something that the characters are maybe listening to within the film. Yeah, I mean, when you compare this to some of the Beatles movies, which you know I do love, but this is immediately a more sophisticated and a more realistic way of using music and showing you how the characters have music as a part of their everyday life. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be honest, a lot of the Beatles movies I found were just um, a structured bit of them messing about in front of a camera. Essentially, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> why I love a lot of them, but it is true. Yeah. Um and uh, the other thing about um, Quadrophenia is a lot of the cast in Quadrophenia have gone on to become almost national treasures. Certainly, yes. And yet they're the kind of cast that if you'd have gone back in time to 1978, 79 when they were filming this and told them they were going to become national treasures, 
Ray Winston would have told you where to get off. <laughs> yes. And how long did it take me to identify Ray Winston, who <laughs> at the time of filming, I think, was what, about, about 12? Something <laughs> like that. Well, it, uh, famously, uh, Phil Daniels celebrated his 18th birthday on set. Yeah. So, so that that puts the time frame around um, how long ago this is. But yeah, I, w- I was sat there thinking about all the iconic people that are in this movie um, and thinking, was Ray Winston in it? Or did I dream that? <laughs> no, no, no. Ray Winston's in there singing Bee Boppa <laughs> He certainly does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it's funny because that, that's the last time we convened, of course, was uh, for Absolute Beginners. Which also yeah. had in Ed Tudor character a little hint of that mods versus rockers tension yeah. at a kind of embryonic time. Uh, we should give some mod history, shouldn't we? Because it's something that I think people don't quite understand unless they're part of the subculture. Well, I'll, again, it's another thing I've been thinking of, especially since we did absolute beginners um a, a, a few episodes oh i don't know we haven't released oh. any episodes we don't know what order it's in do we the, this is after absolute beginners it's right. fine if right. it isn't we're experimenting with non-linear narrative it's okay. really sophisticated can we build a time machine out of a gs scooter <laughs> <It's>... so... <laughs> that would be a good show time traveling mods that's your second million dollar idea this show oh are you not aware of the dave gibbons uh graphic novel the originals oh is that what it's about well it, it's about future mods on hover yeah. scooters yeah i i had seen some pictures from that but i'd never read it yeah it does look good so um the the thing about mod culture is that a lot of mods misunderstand it mm. um and this is this has been illustrated to me over my years as a mod um most strongly um at a style council gig in about 1987 at birmingham nec mm. uh so this was what five years after the jam had split yeah uh, four years after paul weller had sort of established the style council as his new musical vehicle and as far removed from the jams standard sound as it was possible to get yeah and yet at birmingham and ac there was a gang of mods in the mosh pit dressed in parkers demanding in a sort of slightly neanderthalic uh intonation that he sing eaton rifles And, and, and this is this is what I've noticed with uh, certainly the revivalist mods of sort of the, the 70s and 80s and and going forward later into the early part of this century. The revivalist mods seem to fixate on an element of the past. Yeah. And certainly the mods that I grew up with uh, at the time of Quadrophenia were, were slightly guilty of that. They were listening to The Who, but of course The Who was still going. Mm. They were listening to The Kinks. The Kinks are still going yeah. on and off. Um, but you also listen to the new bands, the Chords, the Jam, those kind of bands that were that were also part of that mod thing, Secret Affair. Because uh, the mod itself is a shortening of modernist. Absol- you know, it's, absolutely. it's about being up to date. 
And so it's why my generation of mob uh, from the sort of 79, 80 time are also uh, heavily linked in with the two-tone and scar mm. revival that took yeah. place at that time. Um, and that, that's the thing. Mods embrace what's new. They don't necessarily re uh, necessarily reject <laughs> what's old. Yeah. They just don't like it anymore because they've moved on. And mm. actually, if, if you the, there's no there should never be such a thing as a mod revival because yeah. whatever is about to be current is what mods are listening to. So if if you trace forward from when I was a mod in 7980, um, or when I started being a mod in 7980, when I identified as mod, um, to use the modern vernacular, <laughs> um, the natural progression of that would have been going through New Romantic and so on and so forth throughout music, Acid House in the late 80s, you know, early 90s, Britpop in the 90s, although that was largely mod revival anyway. Yeah. So. <laughs> We should probably talk about that, really, because um, in terms of my generation, when I am watching Quadrophenia, part of what I'm watching is the way that the bands of the youth, my youth filtered it through their sort of sensibility. Mm. And not just in music, in culture in general. You've got Leslie Ash in this film, and she, of yeah. course, had a, a fine 90s as part of Men Behaving Badly. Phil Daniels appeared on Park Life, which is about as totemic a Britpop single as you can get. <laughs> Absolutely. I think what mod, or at least this take on mod it, as it exists in this film, offered Britpop, is that Britpop always had this kind of tension which it never resolved between the art school and the street. Yeah. You know, it wanted to be very clever music that was reinterpreting the past and saying things about national identity yeah. and it also wanted to be number one in the charts on page <laughs> one of the sun you know and it's 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 a laudable approach but eventually the dumbness won out and, and to be fair the gallagher's did manage to achieve all those three things yes yeah <laughs> Yeah, the, the three checkpoints, the sun, the charts, <laughs> and educational subnormality, yes. Um. <laughs> and if you're looking for a figure from the past who encapsulates that, and if you're looking for their album that most encapsulates that, it's got to be Pete Townsend, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. A smart, educated, postmodernist who also made music of an ear-bleeding intensity that no one had ever heard before. But sadly never made to number one. Didn't they? Never a number one. Famously, The Who have never had a number one single. That is interesting. That is almost a better club to be part of than bands who have been to number <laughs> one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. There's a certain they're... cachet. Yeah, they're... Everybody seems to think that my generation was a number one, but no, I think it picked at number four or something. So you are, if you have failed to get to number one, you are bracketed alongside the Who, Pulp, the Sex Pistols. It's, it's not a bad list. It's yeah. not a bad list. It's not. I mean, to be fair, you've probably got to specify that you did chart and yeah, then yeah. failed to get to number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also have failed to get to number one. Otherwise, it's a rubbish club. 
Ethel at number 42, she's in that club. <laughs> Although she did do backing vocals for International Rescue by the Fuzzbox. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I suppose you can't cast the net too widely because we're both northerners and everyone from our part of England has been in the fall for about three weeks. That's, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, that's what Quadrophenia is to me anyway. It's a film that is tough, it's violent, it's about characters who are not reflective or sensitive in many ways, but mm. it is made with intelligence and sensitivity itself. Yeah, and I, and I think, crucially, what it, what it does for me is it, it, it answers fundamentally those two questions about a movie that you should ask. What's mm. it about and what is it? about yeah yeah and on the surface it's about a group of mods partying dancing the night away taking drugs having fights getting the girl losing the girl and mourning the death of their scooter at the hands of a vicious postman <laughs> yes on the <laughs> on the other side what's it about it's about that struggle that whether you're 16 26, 36, 56, mm. it's that struggle of where do I fit into this particular section of society? Mm. You know, who are the authority group that I need to answer to? Who are who are the crowd I need to um, appease to be accepted? Yeah. Who are, um, what is my relationship with my parents, etc.? And it, it asks all those questions through our central character of Jimmy, and also looks at, you know, those heroes that you worship, why? Mm. And, that, and that, that one is personified perfectly through Ace Face, as played by Sting. Yeah, and Sting at an interesting point too, isn't it? Because the police hadn't really took off when he signed up mm. to the film. There aren't many figures in it who had any pre-existing fame, as we've said. Certainly the actors are very young, but nowadays you can recognise Sting and you can recognise Toya Wilcox in the cast. Back then, they, they were not notable no. faces. The nearest they had to a pop star in the movie was that John Lydon auditioned extensively for the role of Jimmy <laughs> and was was turned away because the producers thought there is no way we're going to get insurance for one of the <laughs> sex pistols in this film, which I thought was a bit much considering he's probably more drink and drug free than everyone in the actual <laughs> movie. But that was his rep at the time. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, because, because it does take into account um, the, the Ace is, is the quintessential never-meet-your-heroes, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because that fall from grace, from being on Jimmy's pedestal in the courtroom scene, which is still a joy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we take a check. <laughs> <laughs> they got that line out of an actual court transcript from the real-life mods and rockers fights, you know. Yeah. That <laughs> is genuine. Um. And then, and then when Jimmy sees him in his day job, it is such an immense fall from grace in mm -hmm. Jimmy's eyes. It's unbelievable. It's, as Jimmy's world comes crashing down, that is that is almost 
the kaplunk stick from hell. <laughs> um, and it's, so, it's yeah. interesting because most of these characters you think will have some kind of life outside being a mod. You know, most of them have to put food on the table in some way. Yeah. Most of them have some sort of family. Jimmy's family are very briefly pictured in this. And he sees them exclusively through the prison of them disapproving of him being a mod. And that's really his tragedy, isn't he? Isn't it? That, you know, as, as demeaning as it might be to see Ace Face as a hotel bellboy, he's got something to fall back on. Jimmy has nothing outside yeah. this. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think the other thing that I like about this that works in Quadrophenia that doesn't work in Absolute Beginners mm. is it manages to cover a lot of themes as sub-themes successfully yeah. without yeah. feeling like a director or producer that didn't know what story they wanted to tell. Mm. Um we, we have a look at racial tension. We have a look at drug use. We have a look at uh, teenage violence. Yeah, I mean, l let's talk about that character, actually. Ferdy, the yeah. one black member of the gang played by Trevor Laird, is a really, really interesting character. And another way that I think Quadrophenia makes this scene, which by 79 could have felt totally irrelevant. I mean, everyone yeah. knows nothing moves faster than pop music. You're making a film about a scene that's 15 years old. It should be embarrassing, but this film comes out in the context of things like Franco Rosso's Babylon. It comes out in the same year as Horace Ove's play for today, a hall in Babylon. Um, things which deal with Britain's African and West Indian communities in a way that hadn't happened in British mm -hmm. TV and cinema before. And it's just one of those ways in which this film about what, you know, in, in 60s and 70s pop time is a fossil suddenly actually feels like a vital snapshot of 79 as well as 64. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I think that is I think I, I think that's the the appeal it's got over the the original album is, is very much seventies who yeah and it is it is it is almost preserved in amber mm. um, once yeah. once, you, once you hear it and you appreciate it you can go back to it again and again but its initial your initial reaction is this is a nineteen seventy three album yeah yeah uh, whereas I think Quadrophenia has a, has a kind of timelessness to it. Completely. Because I, because I think it... Um, I, th I think it, it addresses things that come round in cycles. The tensions, the, the, the frustrations, etc. They're cyclical. They're, mm. you know... We will have gang violence again. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. It may not be on the same scale. It may not even be in seaside towns. But... Yes. Well, that, that was the thing about the mods and rockers things. Um, in the 60s, all those clashes, and indeed when, when the revivalists came along in the 70s and 80s, all those clashes took place in Bridlington, Brighton, Blackpool, Scarborough. Yeah. yeah. The other thing about the mods and rockers violence, which I think makes it 
again, lastingly relevant rather than just a snapshot of an old youth scene, mm. is that that is where the phrase moral panic comes from. Yeah. That uh, the sociologist Stanley Cohen wrote his classic study, Folk Devils and Moral Panics, about the way that media coverage of fights between mods and rockers ended up inflating the actual violence which they were yeah. supposed to be decrying. So I suppose that's another way in which it's very 79, isn't it? That yeah. this is somebody asking the punk generation, okay, well, you've had your fun and you know, you've got through the initial phase of this, but do you stand for anything or do you just oppose things? Mm. I think the other thing that ties in is that 79, when this came out, is also the time that, that you know, that there were questions being asked about the SPG element of the the Met. Yeah. Um, and there were already questions being raised about police brutality also being part of the escalation of violence yeah. on the streets. So, And I think we see evidence of that in, in the film as well. Um, yeah. Which is partly Frank Rodham's directing tactic. They did, I think they did all of the Brighton Beach stuff first, which is a hell of a baptism of fire, although I imagine once you've got those scenes, you just think, yeah, the, the film works. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they got a lot of actual mod revivalists and rock and roll revivalists down for that. There were a lot of us around. Certainly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> But the police extras they had weren't taking it seriously. So apparently Rodham just went to some of the mods and rocks and said, see them, they've got their helmet on back to front, they're taking the piss. I want you to go for them and really go for them. <laughs> this is the man who created MasterChef, right? <laughs> it is. What a bizarre career Frank Rodham has had. Yeah. You would see this and you think, I mean, this is his, he'd done films on television before mm. at a time when the boundaries between what is a television play and what is a film were kind of interestingly porous, you know. Um, so it wasn't his first feature length drama, but it was his first like cinema release movie. Yeah. And you look at this and you think, well, this guy is a major British director of his time. This guy should have been bracketed alongside, you know, Derek Jarman and Peter Greenaway and that yeah. generation. Not quite, really, was it? No. He created MasterChef, as yeah. we noted, which is incredible. Which means that Quadrophenia <laughs> could have been called Bank Holidays. Don't get tougher than this. <laughs> I think MasterChef would be infinitely better if it was presented by a pilled up Ray Winston, by the way. I think that would be great. <laughs> With Phil Daniels setting the skills test. <laughs> but he did that. He helped create Avrida Zane Pet. Mm hmm. And sure enough, Timothy Spall has his first screen role as a film projectionist in this. Yeah. I think what slowed it down for him is he got tied to this very strange script in Hollywood called The Tuberist, no relation to the uh, Johnny Depp, Angelina Jolie catastrophe of 10 years ago. 
uh, but it was a very strange kind of psychological science fiction film with a heavy S&M angle at a time when nobody was pushing that. You know, this is pre-Madonna, you know, <laughs> getting into leather where nobody wanted that. Everyone agreed that it was the best unproduced script in Hollywood and everyone agreed that it would really freak audiences out. And over the years, you started to see elements of it getting lifted for things like species or men in black that put it into a more commercial context so it's been kind of pickling but frank rodham stayed the course with that for so long it's kind of laudable because it's a, a great difficult script but it was never going to get made <laughs> <laughs> well maybe Maybe it was in the in the wait for the tourist to get made that he developed his um, passion for creative food because he'd have time on his hands, right? He'd have time on his hands. He he will have understood from the script that sometimes extreme pain can cause extreme pleasure, and I I know of no pain more extreme than watching Greg Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I just wonder if Frank is somewhere there pulling out those facial expressions, you know, actually there in the director's chair on the set of MasterChef, <laughs> pulling out those gurns. <laughs> actually I there. I need more eyebrow. Under the table, <laughs> kicking him in the shins <laughs> repeatedly. Yeah. He's got a tin mod revivalist underneath, so he's taking the piss. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it, it just, it, it didn't work out, but I think you have something like Quadrophenia, you have something that will essentially last forever. Mm. You know, I, I think it's, as you say, it's a beautiful snapshot of its time, it's a beautiful snapshot of the time it depicts, and it's also is lastingly relevant. It is... I mean, one of the things I've noticed is this is a favourite film for those bores who like to watch films and say that's a model of car that didn't come out until three years later yeah and that's that's where the american express reference comes from the, yes the, the hotel has the credit card symbols on the door yeah but you know that's kind of the point isn't it i mean some of the anachronisms are to do with Jimmy having Who albums and Who posters that weren't released until years later. Now, if that was in an ordinary film, yeah, I'd assume they had it wrong. If it's in a film that the Who were involved in, I feel like there's probably someone on set who could have set you right if you thought yeah. that sort of thing was important. Yeah, and uh, I mean, let, let's not forget, the investors might be going for a bit of product placement to get some. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, the other thing is, it, it's a film that has a lasting impression on pretty much anyone who sees it. When you mm. find yourself in any situation that um, is in any way mirrored in the film, yeah, it, it floods back to you. My 100k walks that I used to do on the South Coast, in the, in the before times when we could gather in groups of 3,000 to do a walk... <laughs> That, um, that's what one of the big sort of horrors for me in watching the film is looking at that big mods versus rockers rock on Brighton Beach thinking no one is wearing a mask. <laughs> <laughs> that's never two metres. Um, 
Well, um, the 50k point on those 100k walks along the South Downs mm. is at Brighton. Uh, and it's Brighton Pier. And it's right. on August bank holiday weekend. Yeah. So everybody else is walking along. We know we're 4k away from our first hot meal of the day, right? Yeah. Everybody's focused on that. Me, I'm on the lookout for scooters. <laughs> and my big regret as we're walking down Brighton Seafront, with the sound of the real me running through my head. Of course, yes. As we're walking down Brighton Seafront, my big regret is not the fact that I'm 4k away from a decent meal. My big regret is that there are lots of posters for Northern Soul Weekenders <laughs> <laughs> that I can't go to because I'm walking to um, Arundel. Yes. The actual, the, the sort of climatic scene of it is shot at Beachy Head, which mm. I love Brighton. I go down to Brighton anytime I can. Um, I've been to Beachy Head. It is a very ominous place. It has for the benefit of our... For the benefit of our overseas listeners, Beachy Head is infamous in Britain as a suicide hotspot. Yes, it, it has a pastor um, who does daily patrols. I thought I gently I thought you were going to talk about a brand of pasta, like a a brand of suicide themed Italian no, no, food. No, no, no. Like, no, no. Man, Frank Rodham is trying to knit together his career <laughs> in quite unexpected ways here. <laughs> no, there, 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 there is a, a, a pastor who who patrols Beachy Head on a daily basis to try and tempt people away from the edge. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I can believe that. Um, there is something very foreboding about the place. There is also this kind of debate about whether Jimmy like survives or whether it's just his scooter that goes over the edge, despite the fact that the first shot of the film seems to answer that pretty conclusively, I would say. Mm, yeah. I, mean, I think it's it's not aided by the fact that there are constant rumours that there was a Quadrophenia 2 planned. Ah, yes, yeah. And I don't know, I, I quite like the idea that Jimmy does survive and that's mm. the wake-up call he needs. He somehow gets his life on track. And Quadrophenia 2 shows him trying to be Michael Elphick. Mm, yes, yeah. And coping with his own teenage tear away. Because of course if you if you if, if you take it on, that we're talking about someone who would probably be growing up during the Britpop era. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it would be quite an interesting exploration of character. Yeah. I think that that is probably it, that it's meant to be the death of a way of life rather than literally the death of Jimmy. Yeah. But it, it is such a powerful operatic scene and it has obviously all of these resonances with things like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids that it's it kind of understandable people think it's about death I guess. And the thing I like it is uh, about it is the, the fact that all the musical overtones that come from the album that mm. lead up to that climactic shot yeah it's it's all banging crescendo and you know quite quite heavy who rock mm. and then 
the scooter just falls to the sound of the breeze and the wind. And yeah. Ice. It's a great piece it's of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty dangerous. Apparently, they massively undercalculated how far the scooter would fly off, and it nearly hit the helicopter they were filming <laughs> from. I mean, they're not they're not heavy scooters. It has I to guess. be said. <laughs> yeah. You get the momentum up, it, it can fly a fair old way. <laughs> Yeah. Mentioned briefly Michael Elphick, we should talk about some of the adult cast in this film because there were some treats in the uh, smaller roles. Yeah, I mean, it is a who's who, really. Of, uh, yeah, no pun intended. Legends. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Elphick was there at that time when he seemed to pop up for about three minutes in every cult British film. Like, he's there for three minutes in With Neil and I. He's there for three minutes in The Elephant Man. <laughs> you want to make a really cult British film, you got to have Elphick there for a bit. Yeah. Uh, but he's good. He looks sober, which was not always the case with Michael Elphick. <laughs> well, this is pre-Boone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe he hasn't quite established himself as an actor and also as a drinker yet. <laughs> Look, lucky he was in this Who movie and not the Tommy one. He'd otherwise he'd have had a yeah. He'd have had a bit of a sort of trial by fire with uh, good old Ollie, Oliver Reed and Jack Nicholson and and of course Keith Moon. And Keith Moon, of course, <laughs> who died just before this went into production. Yeah. yeah. It's actually, it, it it's weirdly haunting when you hear his stupid Cockney accent on Bellboy, which yeah. it is not a resonance it has on the album. But no. uh, yeah, it, it has a funereal feel in the film. He's good. There's a gangster who they buy some speed from that turns off about to be fake speed. He cons them. And that's John Binden, who was a, a extraordinary figure. Are you familiar with John Binden? Outside of Quadrophenia, no, I'm, I'm not. John Binden took the traditional path into 1960s media celebrity by being one of London's leading gangsters. Right, okay. Uh, he was also noted for having an unusually large penis, which he used to get out frequently at East End boozers and hang, hang tankards off. That was his party trick. Nice, nice work. Uh, Rumoured to have been a lover of Princess Margaret. I do not know whether this is covered in the crown or not. But, um... <laughs> It'd be funny if it wasn't he played himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, he, he got into acting, I think it was one of Ken Loach's early films. I think it was Poor Cow, where he was looking for someone with the right kind of underworld quality and thought, oh yeah, that guy's a gangster. That would probably do it. And he turns up in performance, the Nick Roeg, Donald Camel, Rolling Stones movie in a, a similar sort of quality. My favourite anecdote about John Binden is not actually one that he appeared in, but that I forget which one it was. It wasn't New Values. It might have been the one after that, but one of Iggy Pop's a, a very early 80s albums. Uh, David Bowie turned up to offer moral support and a bit of songwriting. And Bowie told him a load of anecdotes about Binden. 
because uh, he was quite a, a seamster at the time. Mm. And Iggy uh, did a whole verse about John Binden and the biggest dick in London, uh, which boy said, actually, you should probably take that off because quite a bit of it will be seen as libelous towards the royal family. <laughs> So, yeah, quite a life there, John Binton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've got nasty Nick Cotton in there? Of course, yes, yeah. And we haven't really mentioned Toya as Monkey that no. much. Yeah. And she, she's quite a... She's a character that the audience can get feels for, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Toya Wilcox is kind of a... a an affectionist performer anyway. Yeah. Like, even during her punk days, there was always something a bit cuddly about her, I felt. But yeah, yeah. that comes through very strongly here. Yeah, she's sort of the... Uh, I, it, at times, it seems like she's got a... She's like the unrequited love of Jimmy. Yeah. It feels um, like, you know, Leslie Ash's character is the one that he pines after, but Monkey is the one that maybe he should think more yeah. seriously about. Yeah. Um, who else? The the ever wonderful Hugh Lloyd. Oh yes, Hugh Lloyd. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, playing Jimmy's supervisor, I guess, at, at work. Yes. Uh, another clearly sort of sympathetic character. Who, you know, in in as much as was the case in the nineteen sixties. Work environment was sort of like you know a father figure of now don't you be getting up to any mischief at the weekend, <laughs> and it's great because that is the kind of role that is usually thankless. You know, you're in yeah. a teen rebellion picture, you're playing the hero's boss. Your job is to be no fun whatsoever. But I suppose that's the difference between making a mod movie in the 1960s and making a mod movie at the end of the 70s is that the people making it are older men and they have yeah. that degree of insight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, incidentally, do you know how many mod movies were actually made in the 1960s? I'm going to hazard a guess at... None at all? Yeah, none at all, which surprised me, considering that 60s cinema exploited the hell out of any pop trend that happened. And even when you have the like late 60s psychedelic scene, which you would think is completely beyond the cognition of any film studio, you still have a load of terrible films like Skidoo, where a bunch of old Hollywood people try and make something for the crazy hippie kids, and they're ghastly. But yet, Mod, for the whole of the 60s, couldn't touch it. It was like it was radioactive. But I, I think I think the, the difference between... And you certainly can't say the, the same for the next sort of um, big youth culture thing, which was punk. Mm, mm. I think... By the time you get to punk, you've got some young sort of tyros in the industry. Yeah, you, you've got you've got some people who are both part of the industry and part of you know they may not be big parts of the industry, but they're in the industry enough to have access to kit. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah. Um, whereas in the sixties, you know, 
unless you were doing an internship at rank, you wouldn't have access to like film gear, you know. Yeah, it's a fair point. Yes. And I and I, and I think and I think it, it, it's quite clear from what we see in in Podrafenia that you know the old guard wouldn't have really wanted to make a film about it because they didn't know quite what it was. Yeah, and it was legitimately dangerous. And Probably if you were over 40 at the time, you you would have only known mods from these uh, extraordinary tabloid stories and yeah. mass gang brawls. So it, it would have been... They wanted a hands-off approach. They'd be completely... And if you did get a mod movie, it would probably be just about how mods are evil. Mm, yeah, yeah. So... I guess you can look back at things like what was that film that um, that Joseph Losey made for Hammer Studios with the like evil teenagers? It's called The Damned or something like that. I suppose you can look back at that as a kind of subtextual mod movie, a movie that is about the anxieties that mod caused the older generation, even if it has nothing to do with the actual style and subculture. Yeah, I like I like the fact that the Wikipedia page for Quadrophenia has a shot of the alley where <laughs> Jimmy and Stefan because <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> it's it's just such a, a touristy kind of film in a lot of ways. It and has the, cap- real... the caption says, "Turning left will take you to East Street." <laughs> <laughs> Because that's why you go down that alley, to get to East Street. Completely, yes. <laughs> Brighton now, again, for our for our international listeners, Brighton now is kind of the Austin, Texas of Britain. It's this wonderful kind of hub of countercultural and artistic and queer kind of subgroups. But yeah, it's, it's a completely different business in Quadrophenia. I guess because back when the Mods and Rockers thing happened, there was still a viable British seaside tourist trade. That's right, yeah. I mean, Brighton, like uh, a lot of the other towns that I mentioned before, was a former spa town. It was yeah. where the Royals went to convalesce. You know, it was... Most of the peers were commissioned by members of the royal family. Yes, yeah. And I have a I get a great kick out of recognizing Brighton in films where it's shot. I think my favorite Brighton film before this was that there's a bit where in the Ian McKellen version of Richard the Third, which I think is a masterpiece anyway. I adore that movie. I could never watch it. Oh. Just because of that scene in League of Gentlemen where they're in the video shop. <laughs> yes. Looking at Richard I, I, I. How many doings? <laughs> Ian McEllen. I thought he was a weatherman. <laughs> but yeah, there's a scene in Richard III where they go to the sort of base that he's established as part of a sort of uh, coup attempt. And it's that ridiculous kind of cod oriental sort of palace that the royals built back when it was their major bolt hole. And it's such a wonderfully strange location. I mean, if I was 
one of the peculiarities of the British film industry is that it's all based in London and yet they don't film everything in Brighton, which is about sort of 10 minutes train journey away. I would never get bored of filming in Brighton. It's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, the, my only experience of Brighton um, mm. has been walking through it at various times of the evening uh, on those 100Ks. Yeah. It was always just too far to go for me. Um, but even even though we're walking down that main uh, drag, the, the, yeah. the main promenade, down past the pier and the Grand Hotel and all the rest of it, um, it's a remarkably different feel. Mm. So, so the route we took came down the hillside to the promenade yeah. Through, through what somehow manages, even though it's the outskirts of a town and therefore should just look like the outskirts of any other town with its little and its... Yeah. Know, it somehow manages to steal, still feel like Brighton. Yes, completely, yeah. Um, and then you get down onto the promenade, which is very seaside-y and, as you've, as you've mentioned, not as run-down seaside-y as it would have done maybe 20 years ago. Yeah, it's it's found a reason to exist other yeah. than day trips to the there's beach. A, there's a lot of cafe culture on that beach, isn't there? Isn't there just? I mean, uh, it's, it's still they, quite mod. Yeah, they'd ne- <laughs> it's very cafe blur album cover. Yeah, but they'd never um, they'd never be able to stage those fight scenes at Brighton now. It'd take them three weeks to clear everything just so that they could have the room to fight. <laughs> I know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, then, the, also the seagulls would beat them up the seagulls would <laughs> brighten the vicious bastards <laughs> and then as you, as you walk on towards um, as you head out towards Hove along the, along the seafront you get into this sort of strange netherworld that's it's neither seaside town but it's not quite coastal rural path yeah yeah and it, you're not sure what what's going on there. <laughs> it, it it is lovely. Uh, Brighton and Hove is actually Albion, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, very good. A rare a rare but priceless football joke from you there. Cherish those; they don't come around very often. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Um, a few things to a uh, few bits of trivia to wind up with. I I love the fact that when this went out to America, they created a censored version for television, as was the practice back then, which still actually had a load of swearing in it because the Americans found the accent so incomprehensible that they just missed half the swearing. Excellent. <laughs> uh, you see... I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that kind of censorship anyway. No. Because I think if, if you get to show a film that isn't suitable to be shown before the watershed, you should show it after the watershed. Well, it's weird in America, isn't it? Because there's things that we'd show before the watershed over here that they still wouldn't show after the watershed over there. That's true. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but uh, the, the truth of the matter is, you know, if you... If you're going to cut out the exposure to bad language in in a 
in a fear that it will bring around the moral fiber collapse of the entire nation. I mean, yes. first of all, US, way too late. And two, <laughs> horse and bolted. And they should know about it. They've got ranches. <laughs> but uh, also, are you going to issue every member of the public with noise-cancelling earphones before they set out foot outside their door? You know? <laughs> there is that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, but I, I just I just feel that that scene with the post van and the scooter would lose all impact if it was replaced by beeps. You rotter. <laughs> you, you absolute stinking jerk. You've killed my blimmin' scooter. Or, for a surreal moment, if they wanted to, if they wanted to get rid of the swearing... Get Rupert Everett to overdub all Jimmy's lines. <laughs> that would make it lovely and acceptable for America, that would, wouldn't it? That would make it really classy. <laughs> <laughs> That's that old Peter Cook and Dudley Moore sketch, isn't it, where they were complaining about the reception that Derek and Clive got. Oh, it's quite different when it's Gielgud, isn't it? A, a prick in Gielgud's mouth is a, a quite beautiful thing. Salavi <laughs> so can handle an arsehole like no one's business. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I just... Because it's one of those films, I think. It, I, I get that there are films where the swearing is gratuitous and yeah, unnecessary and maybe more than would be warranted by whatever's going on in any given scene. Mm. But in Contrafenia, it, it isn't. It's incidental. It is just the language of the, the people in the film. You could not do a psychologically convincing film about a character like Jimmy without acknowledging that he swears. Yeah. You could make a film about mods that had no swearing, but it would be a radically different film to Quadrophenia. Yeah. A few things that I found out when I was searching the album as well. Um, you mentioned that it doesn't really have any big like iconic who tracks on it. There aren't that many of those. Well, there's 515, that's about it, really. 515 was a pretty big hit, and Love Rain Over Me has... I, I think it's become more of a favourite through playing live, which is yeah. understandable, because it's a, it's a real epic. Um, one unexpected reason why this might be is that it was impossible for them to produce enough vinyl copies to meet demand because of the OPEC crisis. <laughs> so if you're wondering why Quadrophenia feels like a snapshot of the 70s as much as it is the 60s, that's probably <laughs> it. And it, it, it. It's from a time when vinyl records were thick. Yeah, they they were big chunk boys in yeah, many ways. You yes. you could uh, you could serve a Sunday dinner on it and still play <laughs> it afterwards. Yes, and indeed some hipster restaurants probably now do. <laughs> Who fancer? Would you like to sit in our Quadrophenia booth? That is that is prob that probably does exist in Brighton today. Yeah, it's probably. Or, and if not, Camden. Yes. <laughs> 
so yes, that's Quadrophenia, a film I could not be happier to have caught up with. And that's been Pop Screen this week. Uh, like I say, you can find me at Horrified. And I also cover a lot of the geek show, .co.uk, which is our parent network. Uh, we do. I do the Director's Lottery podcast with Rob Simpson, which you can get by donating to our Patreon, uh, as well as the bonus episodes of this podcast. Uh, Mick, would you just like to remind the audience where they can find you these days? Um, well, Brighton dance halls, exactly. Uh, scooter yep. rallies. I tee them up. You knock them out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, But yes, uh, Mick is also on Behold, which uh, several of us geek show types do, about trying to decide, discern scientifically which is the best comic book movie. Ah, comic book adaptation. Ah, so, because yes. We, because and, uh, I know this may become a revelation to you, uh, Graham, but there, there's a smaller version of cinema called television. <laughs> That people yes. have a, in their homes, uh, and 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 quite often can enjoy small snippets of entertainment, maybe an hour long at a time, in the comfort of their own living room, and and some of the adaptations uh, are in that medium. It won't catch on, but listeners, if you're into <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, Behold, podcasts do a very good job of covering it. Uh, yes, but until next time, uh, that's been a lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. I've been Mick. And we'll see you next time with more pop movies. Mm -hmm.